And yeah, we are looking at the gospel today. We're looking at the book of Matthew. We're in week five, and in chapter three, we finish the lineage and the birth of Yeshua. Last week, we don't get a whole lot of information about Yeshua from his birth until he begins his ministry. And Matthew deals with Yeshua being a descendant of David, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, his virgin birth, and then he goes right into his ministry. And his ministry doesn't begin until his immersion. You have to ask yourself, why did Yochanan Hamadil, or how we would say John the Baptist, have to immerse Yeshua? Why would he have to do that? Well, it's one of those things I don't know if I can really answer, but we're going to take a stab at it. But first, we have this brief excursion into the life of John. So let's take a look at this. He's in the Judean wilderness, immersing because the kingdom of heaven is near, he says. And the people are coming to him confessing their sins. In the church, we have an immersion that we do after we accept Yeshua. And we think a lot of times, a lot of people think that that immersion was something new to the church. However, immersion is something that was part of the way of life in the first century. It was one, the way one purified his or herself. If you look into the Mishnah, you'll find that well over 50% of what is written there has to do with purity. Immersion is all about cleansing oneself from impurity, from uncleanness. And there are a multitude of things that can render a person unclean. In ancient Israel, there were contact with a dead person, rendered you unclean, it required an immersion, a mikvah. A woman's monthly cycle rendered her unclean, required a mikvah. Not only that, everything she touched was unclean. Those, things, those are things that are written in the Torah, in the, God, in the written word. I want to get across to you that immersion is closely tied up with one's contact with death. Whenever you see death, you're going to find immersion. And you'll also find that most immersions have to do with purifying oneself after coming in contact with death. By way of example, the people in the story of John are confessing their sin and they're being immersed. And the wages of sin are what? Death. A woman would immerse herself after her monthly cycle. And if we look at that, we see that there was a possible life. That bleeding was the result of the death of that possible life. And so while not always so, it's, it's not always so, but it's closely tied up with purifying yourself from death. We need to also understand that contact with something unclean like a woman during her monthly cycle or a corpse rendered you unclean as well. It rendered you unclean and then an immersion was necessary for you. So there were a lot of immersions. Every time you went up to the temple, if you were going into the inner courts, you had to go through the immersion bath. There were immersions that showed a change of status as with a proselyte, as someone from the nations coming into Judaism. If a non-Jew wanted to become part of the ethnicity, the Jewish people, he would have to go through an immersion bath. And when he came out of the water, it was said that he was born again. This time, he was a son of Abraham. And so in this, even we see death as well, in the symbolic sense, the death of his former self, and then the rebirth as a son of Abraham. Something else that renders you unclean is sin. It, Sin renders you impure and requires an immersion. 
I think with the idea that sin renders you unclean is what God really wants to get across to us. He wants us to understand about immersions in the purity laws. When you touched a dead body, you were unclean. And that death, so to speak, was passed to you. That uncleanness was passed to you. In the same way, think about it, when you touch a sinner, when you have fellowship with those who are involved in unrepentant sin, you also take part in that. You become unclean. It's, it's passed to you. And so John is immersing in the Judean desert, in the River Jordan, and he's also preaching a message. Let's read uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So first, who is John? Well, he's a, of the priestly family. So if you ask, ask yourself, if he's of the priestly family, why isn't he serving in the temple if he's a priest? Well, it could be he's not happy uh, uh, with the temple and its services. There were a, a whole community of people that lived in the Judean wilderness, the Essenes, that weren't happy with uh, the temple services. Josephus speaks of them. And we'll read about, him, uh, read about it. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and that very justly as a punishment for what he did against John, that was called the Baptist, for Herod slew him, who was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. And so to come to baptism, that for washing with water would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved by hearing his words. So what I want to get across to you is that John is highly respected. We're told that John the Baptist, in, in chapter 3, his real name would have been Yochanan ben Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah was a priest, and so Yochanan is a priest. He's a Kohen. He's in the 30th year. He should have been serving, begun his ministry uh, in the temple. Instead, we find him out in the Judean wilderness preaching, return to God and baptizing people with water. And there were, like I said, there were other priests in, in, the, in Yochanan's day that didn't report for duty in the temple either. There was a whole group of these priests who were unhappy with, with those who controlled the temple, and they had separated themselves from the priesthood. They did this because the priesthood had really sold out to Rome. They had corrupted their ways. And these separatists lived together in the wilderness of Judah, and their sect was called the Essenes. Let's read about them from the Jewish Encyclopedia. The Essenes conformed to the most rigid rules of Levitical purity while aspiring to the highest degree of holiness. They lived solely by the work of their hands in an estate of communism, devoted, to their, devoted their time to study and devotion and to the practice of benevolence. The Essenes, as they appear in history, were far from being either philosophers or recluses. They were, as Josephus said, regarded by King Herod as endowed with higher powers. Their principle of avoiding 
taking an oath was not infringed upon. Herod's favor was due to the fact that Menahem, one of their numbers who, excelling in virtuous conduct and preaching righteousness, piety, and love for humanity, possessed the divine gift of prophecy, and he predicted Herod's rise to royalty. Now, I don't want to get into discussing the Essenes today, but I did want you to note that they believed many of the things that Yeshua, we find Yeshua teaching. And that's not to say that Yeshua was an Essene or that even Yochanan was from that group, but to show that in a lot of ways these guys were on the right track. If we look at Yochanan, if we look at the possibility that he was an Essene, we can look and see that he had many beliefs in common with them. As we stated above, both John and, and many of the Essenes were separatists from the priesthood. Both John and the Essenes believed in the eminent intervention in the affairs of man by God. Both John and the Essenes believed in the coming of the Messiah. Both John and the Essenes placed a high priority on immersion for purification. And both John and the Essenes taught the importance of returning to the ways of God. And as we read above, they were thought of as having higher powers and thought of prophecy. And John was a prophet. And so John was a prophet, and he was not the only priest who was a prophet. If we look back through history, we can find lots of others. Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah were all prophets, and they were also all priests. But John, we're told, came in the power of Elijah. And we should kind of piece that together by the way he dressed. John's camel hair garment and leather belt should immediately take us to thinking of Elijah, who wore the same clothing. And then Yeshua tells us later that he is the prophet that was to come in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. We read, if you are willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who was to come. And so John is preaching repentance into a Hebrew mindset set. Uh, that's something that changes the way you walk through life. Repentance is a heart change that causes you to live differently. To a Greek mindset, when we read the word repentance, we get something more like sorrow. Oh, I'm sorry. Trouble with I'm sorry in a Greek mindset is oftentimes it's quite brief. So brief that it doesn't really translate to action in the person's life. And so they end up doing the same thing again. To these folks, when they heard John speak the equivalent of repentant Hebrew, which would have been shuv, it meant a change in direction in your life. And I put the definition of the Hebrew word shuv up here. It means to return, to turn back. In other words, to change direction. And so if we combine what Josephus said about John, supposing that the soul was thoroughly purified before him by righteousness, we come up with turn from your sins and back to the commands of God, live righteous lives, after which then you would go through the waters of immersion and separate yourself from those sins in your past, purify yourself. And so the essence of the message is turn from your sin because the kingdom of heaven is near. Probably the next thing we probably understand, should understand is what was the kingdom of heaven to these men. Matthew uses the term as a circumlocution for the name of God. The Hebrews at this time did not speak the name of God, and so they would use terms like heaven or father. 
But understand, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are, as it's put in other gospels, are saying the same thing. And what did he mean by the kingdom of heaven is near? Well, if you ask the average Christian what that would mean, they'd probably look up in the clouds to see if Yeshua was coming back on the clouds of heaven. But not so much back then. And certainly the kingdom of heaven is defined uh, as being much more than that. Saying the kingdom of heaven is near could mean the king is near. It could mean more, uh, and probably more likely in this instance, it means the rule of the king is here. The rule of God is here. The thing that separates the kingdom of heaven from the rulers of this age is that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven follow their ruler, the ruler of the kingdom. They obey the laws of the kingdom. Or, of course, if you don't obey the laws of a kingdom and you're part of that kingdom, what happens to you? You suffer some punishment. And so John is preaching repent. From, and if we look at Isaiah 45 and verse 23, he says some things as well I want to read. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Before the king, every knee will bow, and you can bow in two ways, because every knee is going to bow. And you can bow in two ways. You can confess that he's Lord and obey him and bend your knee that way, or he'll bend it for you as you're taken away. And so the message is obvious here. Repent now. The rule of God is near. So go through the waters of immersion, come up on the other side, living as the king commands. And then Matthew tells us that John is the one who Isaiah speaks of. He says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, This is who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so what we learn that the message of the kingdom of heaven is that the king is near. And John is there preparing the way, preparing the hearts, making straight paths, making upright paths for him. And as you might imagine, Isaiah said a bit more than that, so I want to read a bit farther. Whenever you see a quote in Scripture, you should read a little bit farther because what the writer is doing is trying to draw your attention to that passage. So if we read in verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. Crooked places shall be made straight, and rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so, in the kingdom of heaven, what's being said here is in the kingdom of heaven, the humble, those who have repented, in this verse, are the valleys, and they shall be exalted. And the mountains are those who have exalted themselves, and they're going to be brought low. And crooked paths or iniquity will be made straight and rough places smooth. So the essence here is that the glory of God is near and all flesh will see it and repent and humble yourself before it's too late and make the path of your life straight. And I want to read uh, next from Isaiah 40. In verse 9 it says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, 
You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule before him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And so the message of John is stop sinning, cleanse yourselves before the kingdom and the king are here. And he brought with him good news for the humble. Not only that, he applies in the verse that he's the one preparing the way. Yeshua is the one who is the way is being prepared for. And if you look at the text of Isaiah, what does it say? Prepare the way for our God. Matthew, in his telling of John the Baptist's story, makes no bones about it that Yeshua is our God. Amen? John is making straight paths in anticipation of his arrival. Verse 4 says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. The people went out from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And I want to read from Josephus, because as Josephus pointed out, uh, or I, I don't want to read again, but as Josephus pointed out, John's message was popular, so popular that it would eventually lead to his demise. His message not only grabs the attention of the people, but it also grabs Herod's attention. Verse 7, But when many, and it grabs the attention of the Pharisees as well, but when, many, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you the truth that these, out of these stones God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Let's look at this another way. The kingdom of heaven was present. You know, the Jewish people of the day thought that Israel was the kingdom of God. And they, being the children of Abraham, the descendants of those who stood at Mount Sinai, they were God's kingdom. And we can see that they thought of themselves this way in the Talmud. Sanhedrin 10.4 says, All Israelites have a share in the world to come. As it is said, your people also are the righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. A branch from my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. Well, John, what he does here is he challenges that thinking. He says, it's not your lineage that makes you part of the kingdom of heaven, but it's your obedience to God. Therefore, repent. It's, it is the reign of God in your life that makes you part of the kingdom. That's the fruit of the kingdom, that God is reigning in your life. Even though... They made statements like all Israel has a share in the world to come. They also knew that you could be cut off. You could be carret from Israel through sin. He calls these Pharisees who come a brood of vipers. 
Why would he call them a brood of vipers? Because a viper's poison comes from their mouth and poison keeps people from life. Notice that he says it's in the road, in their walk, in the way of their walk. Notice as Matthew has done and will continue to do, he alludes again here also to Gentile inclusion into the people of God. He says God can raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. And so he alludes to these prophecies as branches that are about to be cut off, a point that Paul will make in Romans. So he warns them of their destructive path. But then look at who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Pharisees and Sadducees. How can this be? They're Torah-observant Jews. They're considered very pious, the pious of all Israel, separate from the people. And he's telling them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. They have obviously not come to repent, but they've come to find out, what is he doing out here? Why is he doing what he's doing? If we look at the book of John, he tells us this very thing. He tells us a little bit more. In 1 John, uh, John 1, chapter 24, it says, Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor a prophet? And so they come out not because they want to repent. They're not there to repent, but they're to find out what he's doing. Because what he's doing isn't keeping with their understanding. No matter if it's good or not, no matter if all these people are coming to him and repenting of their sins, what difference does that make? You're not doing things the way you should be doing them. John is telling us something here. Matthew actually is telling us something here that will be the focus of Paul's letters to the Galatians, the book of Romans, and that is we are not to be following traditions of men. We're not to be putting the traditions of men over what's important to God. What's important to God is these people coming and repenting and being immersed. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Yeshua that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean to him... It is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Messiah died. Therefore, don't let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Messiah in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of following traditional teachings of men, but it's a matter of living holy and righteous lives in peace and in joy of the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit of God. You know, you hear Paul say some things sometimes, and this might be even this last passage we read, might even sound like he was saying something about the food laws. He was going against Torah. And Paul did have problems with law. There's no doubt about it. Just as Yeshua has problems with law. Just as John has problems here. But what law did Paul have problems with? Was it the law of God? Or was it the laws of men that he had problems with? 
these men who come are not doing God's will, but they're doing their own will. We could call it the will of the flesh, the will of their flesh. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans in regard to the law. He says this in chapter 8, verse 5. It's a good one for you to remember next time someone tells you the law isn't in effect anymore. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So then, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Messiah, he has None of his. Listen to this. Paul tells us flat out that the carnal cannot please God for it's not subject to the law of God. And these men who've come to John seeking after, not seeking after the things of God because if they were, they would have marveled at what was going on. They would have praised God that so many were coming to the water to repent of their sin and to be immersed. And we're returning to the ways of God. That isn't why they came. They came in their flesh, with their flesh in an uproar, wanting to know, why are you doing this? What I want you to see in these words of Matthew is that the kingdom of heaven is not only present in the form of Yeshua, the Messiah, who will soon come onto the scene, but it's also present in the life of John as he prepares the way. John, by example... Remember what Josephus says? He was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God and so to come to baptism. You see, as Josephus said, he brought people closer to the kingdom through his example. For John, the kingdom was a matter of treating his fellows righteously turning back to God's law. It was fruit keeping in, in keeping with repentance. In other words, walking out the commands of God. And the word that's used for righteousness here is, is zedekah. And it goes hand in hand with charity, with holiness toward God. It's not a matter of how we prepare our food, but a matter of how we prepare our heart. It's not a matter of washing hands, but it's a matter of clean hearts before man and before God. John is doing and accomplishing the will of God in the world, and so the kingdom of, present is, the kingdom of heaven is present in his life. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are on their own mission, a mission of men, and so they represent the present evil age, a brood of vipers in the road keeping the children of God from the path that leads to them, to him. Something I realized about the Messianic movement years ago, and to a degree I had to repent of this myself, you probably don't remember because it was so long ago. (laughs) You probably didn't know me then. 
But your rightness can get in the way of God's righteousness. The Messianic movement, much of it was getting so religious and so concerned with rightness and the way things were done and washing hands and saying the right prayers and doing the right uh, worldly things that we were actually keeping people from the message of the king. Exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. It's no different than what was going on in Galatia and in Rome. The danger of following the commands of Torah a la Judaism is that we get bound up with the legalities of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeshua said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast, of course, means teachings. And the, and the Pharisees, uh, if you want to follow rabbinic Judaism of today, let me tell you something. That's Pharisaic Ju- Judaism on steroids. That's 2,000 more years of rules and regulations. In fact, the Judaism of today is nothing like the Judaism of the first century. It has 2,000 years of more legalities. And they all started to happen after the destruction of the temple. But there's another way of keeping the Torah. And that's through the leading of the Spirit. And that's what Paul talks about. When we keep the Torah through the leading of the Spirit, then the compassion of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, and the forgiveness of God is revealed to those around us. And we become like our Messiah, living out God's Torah for all to see by the leading of the Spirit. The problem for most is that before we come to that understanding, we probably alienated most of the people in our lives. Amen? And so we have a lot of repenting to do. We need to go to the waters of immersion. (laughs) So what I'm saying is today is that while we want to follow Torah, we don't want to be a viper in the road. We want the fruit, let the fruit of your mouth and your Torah observance keep people coming to the kingdom, not keep people from the kingdom. Amen? Let's bring the worship team up.